Amen. You may be seated. Now, for our Old Testament scripture, uh, of course, I'm preaching on the whole book of Esther tonight. And, uh, but I've chosen for our reading, right in the heart of the book, in chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, through chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, through chapter 6, verse 10. I believe this is the climax in the story in the book of Esther. That um, there's like a, a hinge, and the whole story turns right at this point. Um, if you were making a movie out of the story of Esther and did it right, stuck to the text... You'd want to do some kind of special music at this point that would build the whole thing to this incredible moment of suspense. And that's how we should read it, too, is this true story from the Old Testament. Esther chapter 5, verse 12, the word of God. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace, to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. I must admit, I have to smile whenever I read that that text at the irony of God's great providence in his plan. Now our New Testament reading, I've chosen Acts 23, uh, verses... 11 through 18. Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 18.
God's word. Acts 23, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. Then came the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. This ends the reading of God's word. And I chose that, that story from Acts because I've always found myself thinking, I wonder how Paul's nephew heard about the ambush. If you were one of those zealots who had made that vow, you probably didn't go around advertising it too loudly because the whole thing depended on secrecy. And it doesn't make you curious, and we don't need to know, but probably in some pretty inconsequential manner, uh, from a human point of view, word got down the line, and Paul's nephew heard of this, and God used that to rescue Paul. And one of the things I want us to think about tonight is God's use of the little details, how they're all part of his plan. Uh, yes, the, the big picture is his plan. But the big pictures are composed of the details. And God is in charge there too. And that's important for me and for you. Well, um, I had asked this morning how many of you had read through or skimmed through Esther again this uh, last week. And most of those who were there this morning said they had. So I'm going to shorten what I was going to do at this point. I was going to give about a 10-minute review of Esther, but I'm going to shorten it down. Uh, What do we have here in the book? It opens up with King Ahasuerus, who was a Persian king in the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, he gets into a fight with his his, uh, pagan wife, Vashti. And um, you have this ridiculous story of both of them standing in their pride. And the the marriage falls apart, and Vashti's no longer the queen. there, There are actually some lessons to think about there in regard to how a Christian marriage ought to look different than a non-Christian marriage. Uh, again, the whole thing centered, seems to center on pride. Two proud sinners who won't meet each other even halfway. And while after she's no longer queen, though, this is the thing that's important. Um, Esther, the one the book we've entitled the book after, a Jewish girl, uh, is chosen to be queen. And uh, Mordecai, her cousin who is older than her and has actually acted as her father uh, throughout life um, we're told about him Uh, we have uh, Mordecai saving the king's life and this seems like just a a fairly small incident because it's only mentioned in a couple verses and that's it he just moves on and doesn't come back to it until the, the text we just read and so as a, you, you can almost, the first time you read the book, or I did, I almost forgot about that, that little incident because it was so de-emphasized in the, 
how the story was told. But Mordecai overhears a couple of fellows plotting to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And he reports it to Esther, who reports it in Mordecai's name to the king. All of this is put down. There was a little tiny oversight, though, uh, very unusual for uh, that time and place, and that no reward was given to Mordecai. And again, it's just a little detail that's going to be so significant later. Well, then we have the introduction of the antagonist, uh, Haman. Haman is a, a proud uh, up and rising star in the empire and he's so arrogant that he wants people to fall down before him when he walks by he wants to be worshipped and Mordecai as a Jew refuses to do so and so Haman has this great plot to destroy Mordecai but uh, the guy's uh, psychotic or whatever so sociopath or something uh, he's so arrogant it's not enough to kill Mordecai he wants to kill every living Jew that breathes and um, the king doesn't even investigate this thing. Haman goes and says, can I, kill, can, I, can I prepare orders in your name to have all these Jews killed on a certain day? It's about a year off to give time to make preparations. The king says, sure, you know, whatever you want to do is fine. And so word goes out about this, and Mordecai asks Esther to approach the king. And uh, Esther says, you know, unless the king calls for you to come... It's the death penalty, unless when you come, he holds out the golden scepter to you. Uh, these Medo-Persian kings were kind of egomaniacs, and, and um, you know, I'm so important that nobody better approach me unless I ask them to approach. And um, Mordecai says, listen, uh, the Jews are a special people, and they're going to be delivered one way or another, but God's put you in this position to do what I'm asking you to do, and if you don't do it, you'll probably be destroyed, but God will rescue his people. So Esther asked the, the people of God to pray and fast, and then she goes, and the, the king does hold out the golden scepter. And instead of asking for the deliverance of her people, Esther is led, I believe she was led, by the Spirit to build up the suspense in the, the heart and mind of the king. So she says, well, I'd, I'd like you and Haman to come to a special lunch I prepared today. And so uh, Haman and the king go to that lunch, and... Um, and the king says, what is it you want, Queen Esther? And she says, listen, I'll, let's do this again tomorrow, and I'll tell you tomorrow. I don't know if she was afraid to ask, or like I said, if she was just led, and she didn't know why, to put off to build the suspense. Well, we picked up then in the story there in our reading. You know, Haman goes home, and he's just proud as a peacock, and brags to his wife, and uh, brags to all his friends. There was one verse in here, he brags about how many sons he has to his wife. I've always thought that was a little bit humorous there. She probably had a better idea than he did. But uh, he says, I, the only thing that bothers me is this, this Mordecai won't bow down to me. And they say, well, build a 75-foot high gallows and ask the king to let you hang Mordecai on that tomorrow. Um, you know, That's kind of over the top, isn't it? 75 feet high. And so... Then we have this whole thing that the king couldn't sleep. This, that night of all nights, the king can't sleep. And we all know what that is when you lay there and you toss and turn and wish it was morning and just to get it over with. And so I like history, and history can wake me up, but a lot of my friends say that history puts them to sleep. And so the king must have been like my friends, and he asked that the history books be brought, and actually some of the more recent history, and they read history to him so he can probably get to sleep. But instead... 
he's reminded that this Jew named Mordecai had saved his life. And by that time, it's morning. And um, the king says, what, what did we do for Mordecai? And they said, well, we didn't do anything for him. At that very moment, Haman shows up to ask the king if he can hang this really wicked guy named Mordecai, the Jew. At the very same moment, the king's saying, what can we do for Mordecai, the Jew? And so, you know the story. The king asks uh, Haman, what should, what should we do to really honor someone? And Haman is so such a proud peacock that he assumes it has to be him. And so, again, it's, it's just over the top again. You know, take one of your royal robes and have one of your greatest princes in the land clothe him in one of your, your robes and put him on your royal horse and uh, with a royal insignia on it and have this great prince go on foot before and lead the horse yelling out, this is how, God, this is how the king honors uh, a man he wants to honor. And can you just try to put yourself in Haman's place for a moment? When the king says, okay, I want you to be the great prince, and I want you to go take the Jew, Mordecai, and put him on my horse and do everything you've just said. It's hard, it's hard to even capture that moment, isn't it? And when Haman gets done, I always find this, there's a lot of, there's a lot of just, um, it's not the main point, but there are a lot of things that illustrate the foolishness of the unregenerate, man he goes back home and he says to his wife and his pals uh, listen I went to have Mordecai hung and this is what happened and these fair weather friends say oh boy if you begin to fall before those Jews everybody knows they've got some weird stuff you know connected with them um, you're probably really a goner and you can almost see them stepping away from him you know to make sure they weren't too close Um, yesterday you know he was the rising star and they wanted to be close to him they don't want to today at that very moment the messenger arrives uh, takes him to the the second special lunch with Queen Esther and she reveals to the king that Haman is trying to destroy her and all her people and the king is uh, goes ballistic doesn't he then storms out into the the garden I suspect to try you know to find a couple guards to come in and arrest Haman and you don't know whether to laugh or to cry on this hardly. Haman has fallen down before Queen Esther to beg for his life. He's kind of fallen across the divine almost on top of her. The king walks in, totally misunderstands what's actually happening. says, he's going he's gonna to try to attack the queen with me here. And that's the end of Haman, of course. Uh, actually, it's interesting. One of the servants speaks up and says... Um, uh, in regard to Haman to the king at that moment. Uh, Sire, did you know that Haman had a 75-foot gallows built to hang Mordecai, the Jew who saved your life on? And basically, to paraphrase that the king says, hang him high, and that's what happened uh, to Haman. And uh, then God delivers his covenant people, doesn't he? So actually, I took my 10 minutes there after all. I just find it such a fascinating story. I just, I love this story. Now, the theme of Esther is God's providence. That, what we read earlier, that's the theme of Esther. Uh, the biblical teaching on providence. Uh, the shorter catechism tries to sum it up in one short sentence, the, the scriptures on this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. 
And uh, God, in his perfect and infinite holiness, wisdom, and power, having created all things, uh, the whole universe of creation, keeps in existence and motion all that he has created. And what's more, it's telling us that, that providence means God's bringing everything to a certain conclusion. That he has this story we call history, but he's the creator of all true history. And the story... Uh, has this climatic conclusion, and then we enter into eternity. And the, that conclusion, of course, is uh, the coming of Christ. Uh, but this, this God's control includes all living creatures, including humanity and angels. And uh, God's plan for, for creation includes all that happens, the whole history, and every single angel and every single human being. And that's the theme of Esther. God is in charge of all that is and all that happens. And so his eternal plan includes all that is and all that happens. So, is there anything about salvation in Esther? Is there anything about what we would call, you know, redemption viewed historically, being unveiled to us and brought to us? Well, actually there is. Um, In the uh, Westminster Confession there, as I tried to point out, Uh, The last section talks about how the real heart of God's plan is Jesus Christ and the people Christ is redeemed. And so if providence is the doctrine of God's big story and how he's in charge of all of it, and the heart of that story is Christ and, and us redeemed by Christ, then we're the... You know, the the primary point of Esther is God's providence. He's in charge of all things. And the primary purpose or point of providence is Jesus Christ and our redemption in him. And we find that in Esther as well. In this whole story of Mordecai the Jew and how God works through this godly man to rescue his people from this evil Haman. And uh, this week, as I've contemplated uh, this sermon, I've thought about some of the parallels between Christ and Mordecai. You know, you, you, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the idea of a type, an Old Testament type, which is a prophetic picture uh, of Christ before Christ comes. And uh, you know, the sacrifices of the animals commanded by Moses were types of the once-for-all sacrifice Christ, uh, of Christ. David was a type of Christ in his kingship. And the types are never perfect, and the types are never the, the fullness, because what they're doing is looking ahead to the fullness, which is Christ himself. And there are, there are a number of parallels between Mordecai and Christ. Uh, Mordecai is as good as dead at one point. It, it's, it's almost a picture of the crucifixion. And, um, and then he rises again, not literally, but right at the point, looks like he's going to die, be hung on a 75-foot gallows. Now instead, he's the guy being paraded around the, the capital city and being praised. And actually given power then, he takes Haman's political position as the prime minister of the empire. And in that position, he rescues uh, his fellow Jews, God's covenant people. And uh, so the story of providence is the story of redemption. And we always want to keep that in mind. Now, I see uh, five 
main points about the doctrine of some, uh, providence summarized in the book of Esther. Number one, providence includes all that happens in all creation history, including the existence and action of all creatures. This is a general statement here. And the other four um, subdivisions are working this out more particularly. But one thing, um, I had read through Esther several times, and then I was reading a commentary, this is back as a real young man, and I realized there was something missing from the book of Esther, and I'd read through it a couple times, never caught it. Do you know what is missing from the book of Esther? Yeah, any direct reference to God. No name of God is ever used. No person of the Holy Trinity is mentioned directly. It doesn't say the Spirit of the Lord or the Lord or God or Jehovah or Elohim. or The name's not there. And yet, it, it, when I first realized that, I went back and reread the book. And I thought, well, God's all throughout it. God's all throughout it. And that's true. That, that's important. This is done on purpose, you see. Because that's true of the reality of providence. Is, is Christian, is your God only in control when you think about him being in control? No. The doctrine of providence says, even if we're not thinking about him right now, he's still in control. He's a real God and really in charge. And there are a lot of times uh, we don't think about him like we ought to, enough, throughout the day. But he never ceases to think about us, and he never ceases to be at work in our lives and be at work on our behalf as his people. And so that's what's interesting in this book about providence. It doesn't directly mention God, and yet when you find that out, you're surprised because God is, it's obvious God is in charge of every one of these events in every detail. In Ephesians 1.11, I mentioned this verse this morning, God works all things according to the counsel of his will, all things. And Romans 8.28 that I mentioned earlier, God works all things together for good. To those who love him are called according to his purpose. And if God works all things together for Bill's good, uh, that you, you, from all that we understand of reality, that doesn't take place in like a little bubble that surrounds Bill. In other words, everything in Bill's life has an effect on his family and has an effect on people they know and other people that he knows and, and uh, the church family. Everything's all connected once you really start, you know, if you pull out one of the threads, the whole thing seems like it, you find out how connected it all really is. And for Romans 8.28 to be true, and that's what I was saying about the, the Wesleyan um, Arminian that I knew in my first pastorate, uh, at least she was being thoughtful, even though she was wrong. She was being thoughtful. She was thinking through it and said, I have a hard time accepting what's taught in Romans 8.28 because she didn't want to believe that God is in absolute control. And you have to believe that to, under, to believe that that really works. Think about this. The Old Testament, the nations are just doing God's will even though they rarely realize they're doing God's will. You know, the whole book of Daniel emphasizes that. The whole book that the, the, the great emperors are accomplishing what God has ordained. And that's not what they're thinking they're doing, but that's what's happening. 
you study the book of Esther, there's no unnecessary detail. And by the way, I just I also mentioned the verse here, Proverbs 16, 33, even the throw of every dice is under God's control. Now, I'm not saying it all has equal importance in, in one sense. You know, we're, some things certainly look more important to us than others. But according to Proverbs 16, 33, every game of Yahtzee you ever played and every throw of dice you ever made, God is in control. And... Um, that's, that's quite a claim there. So as we study the book of Esther, there's no unnecessary detail. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot to assassinate the king when he's in the gate of the palace. The king just happens to forget to reward Mordecai for saving his life. The king just happens to be unable to sleep the night before the evil man Haman comes to ask that Mordecai be hung on the super high gallows that Haman has caused to be constructed the day before for that purpose. The king just happens to ask that part of the history of the kingdom be read to him that night so he could go to sleep. The part of the history read to him that night just happened to be the part about Mordecai saving the king's life. The king just happened to ask, do we do anything to reward Mordecai for saving my life? So he's just learned this, that this has been neglected minutes, maybe seconds before Haman walks in the room and he's going to, Haman has come to ask that he can hang Mordecai, the Jew. Right? This, um, no human author could have come up with this irony this thick. I mean, just, it's just, it just overwhelms me when I, I see how God brings this. All the little details, and they all come together. And it all falls in place. Once in a while, a movie or a book does this, doesn't it? Not as good as this, because this is real. But, you know, you read this this bit of information over here and this bit over here and this bit over here and there at the conclusion it's you know a lot of mystery novels do this the whole thing's tied together and you see that it was all working together toward one great end and we see that here so god is in charge of all things and we break that down now uh, my second uh, point in regard to province we find here in esther Providence includes both the major events of history and of creation and the most minor events. The particular king who has a particular love for this particular Jewess, Esther. Mordecai, just happening to overhear the assassination plot. You know, I, I, I doubt whether these two guys were out broadcasting it very loud. They were probably whispering or consulting with one another. And Mordecai happened to be close enough, and they probably didn't realize it, and you overheard them. Uh, the king happens to forget to reward Mordecai. I doubt whether that happened very often, that a great emperor like this, his life was saved by an individual, and he forgot to reward the individual. I doubt whether that would be a very frequent event. Uh, the king unable to sleep. And by the way, in these Old Testament stories, time is often compressed. Now, this could have been months later. If you read the story carefully, you can see that the king and Esther could have been married for a couple years before the, these latter events took place. So some time has gone by, and uh, he's just unable to sleep that night of all nights. Uh, Mordecai and Haman are enemies because Haman wants to be uh, worshipped, and Mordecai will only worship the one true and living God as a faithful Jew. And Haman's hatred comes to this climax. It just... 
it just happens, you know, that the antagonist in the story uh, is um, such an egomaniac that it's, it's to the point of being bizarre, that he wants to kill a whole people because one man won't fall down before him. All of these, uh, all these things just come together. The timing of it all, the big events are ordained by God. Who's king at this time? The small events, not being able to sleep on this particular night of all nights, and uh, that particular part of the history book being read to the king. You can imagine these chronicles of the kingdom, you know, probably massive handwritten um, volumes, and just the one that's needed is read to the king. Let me illustrate a fairly minor event. Uh, We were all taught this in school, weren't we? The assassination of a fairly minor public official led to what? World War I. But of course, that wasn't really what caused it by itself. Um, there, there was all kinds of uh, politics going on. And that fairly minor event of one minor public official being assassinated was just the end part of a whole chain of smaller events that together resulted in the loss of millions of lives in a, in a horrible war. And uh, big events are made up of smaller events. And the Bible claims providence includes all events, big and small. Not just the ultimate end for you as a Christian, eternal glory, which is the biggest thing for all of us here, but everything that leads up to that. And every aspect of your life uh, even your, your conversion to Christ, whether you grew up in the church like I did or grew up outside the church, uh, there was a point you came to believe in, in the gospel, whether you know the exact point or not. And when that happened, there were all kinds of things God had been doing beforehand to get you to the place where you knew you were a sinner and you knew you needed a Savior and you finally saw and appreciated in a way more than just merely intellectual information, who Jesus really was and knew that he was that savior who could rescue you. You All kinds of things have been going on, things that we probably don't even know about and we'll learn about in eternity. And um, that's one of the main points in the doctrine of providence, the, the big things and the small things that comprise the big things. You're under God's control. Thirdly, providence includes all the actions of evil, though in such a way that God is not morally responsible for the evil in any way. And this is, this is difficult, but I believe it's the teaching of Scripture. There's a pagan king and his first pagan wife. And there's this really stupid argument and a stupid standing on one's pride. I think he wanted to... Um, some commentators have... You know, commented that he wanted to do something indecent and all this. I think all it was is she was his trophy wife. You know, look at what a hot woman I married. Think of what a great guy I am kind of thing. And that's wrong. And then on the other hand, she, I think, is trying to start maybe a a feminist kind of movement. You know, we don't need to listen to these husbands. We'll show them who wears the pants in the family. And both of them are in the wrong, and both of them are acting ridiculous. And they're doing it publicly in front of all the officials of this huge empire. And that's not out of God's control. 
but God's not morally responsible for their their evil and, and foolish actions. We have evil Haman and his evil plot that's going to be used by God to, to manifest God's power to save and deliver his people. And God's in charge of that too, but he's not responsible morally for Haman's e- evil and for his choices. But it's not out of God's control. The two guards plotting to assassinate the king, that was a sinful thing to do. And it was crucial for the whole story so that Mordecai would turn out to be this hero that the king honors instead of the, the sacrifice that Haman makes on the gallows. And yet God wasn't morally responsible for the two guards plotting to assassinate their king, but God was in, it was all part of God's plan. Haman's evil hatred of Mordecai, and again, it borders on insanity, so he hates all of God's people simply because this one Jew won't bow before him. And all of that's the background, again, for displaying God's protective and redemptive love for his people. God's going to use that, that danger that God's people are in due to this evil Haman to show how he can rescue his people. And so we have the gallows built and the pride, all the rest of it by, by Haman. It's not out of God's control, but God isn't the one doing it. Haman, as a sinner, is. God is not the author or instigator of sins, either the sin of demons or of human sinners. And yet all that has transpired has transpired according to his eternal purpose. We don't understand how this works exactly. And we talked about that this morning. Uh, but we... I think the reason we don't is we're just too small now to understand how human responsibility and divine sovereignty work together. I suspect when we see the Savior and we know as we are known, many of these things are going to be opened up to us further. And it'll probably be one of those things where, you know, you feel like smacking yourself in the head and saying, why couldn't I see that before? I've had a lot of things like that in my life. Whereas I waited and waited upon the Lord, and he, he would show me at least part of the reason why I'd gone through what I'd gone through. And actually, I was amazed I hadn't seen his hand in it the whole time. But because of my sinful weakness and the fact I'm not uh, any smarter than I am, I had not picked up on it until later on. I think heaven's going to be that way. We're going to say, that's why that was allowed. That's why that evil was permitted. And I can see the great good God brought out of it. It's not that the evil is made good. It's that God is so big, he can bring his ultimate good even out of evil. Evil is really not very big and not very strong from God's point of view. It's really big and really strong from our puny point of view at times. But it's, it's you know, when we get to the end, it's not really anything that presented uh, an inscrutable problem to God ever. God never had to scratch his head and say, now how am I going to get my people out of this mess? He, he never has had to do that. He always has known. Part of the issue is that angels and men make true choices. I spoke about that this morning. And after they are fallen, God can make them part of the evil in his plan, largely by leaving them to themselves. Though I don't think that's a complete explanation. 
Uh, God's eternal plan includes all things, uh, includes all things, guarantees every decision they make. But God is not making the evil decision, but the fallen angel or the fallen human is making that decision. All the Reformed confessions deal with this in one one form or another. Whereas this, um, some who are antagonistic to the Reformed faith will say, well, that, you know, it's fatalism and it makes us like robots and, you know, we don't have any kind of true will or choice. Well, they've never read the Reformed confessions and catechisms. That they don't, this is what I found. When I was Arminian, we knew in our heart of hearts that God was almighty. We, we were, I was an orthodox Arminian. I knew God was almighty. I knew he knew everything. I knew it could only go the way he knew it because he could never be wrong. And so every, all the elements for Calvinism was there, but you shove it way in the background and try to pretend, you know, you, you, you're afraid of it. When you become a Calvinist or Reformed, you say, okay, wh- why am I hiding from this? Simply because I can't understand it all, why do I hide from it? There, there's, there's an incredible amount of comfort and help if I just bring it right to the front. You know, I, uh, I've witnessed to non-Christians and they've got on this subject of predestination. And when you're Reformed, that's okay. I'll, I'll talk to them about it right up front and explain to them I don't understand exactly how it works. But when, you, when, you try, when it's there, implied in your doctrine, but you're not facing up to it, a lot of non-Christians will catch on to that. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll try to bring it out. And so it's always better to just put all the cards on the table and say, here, here's what we believe the Bible teaches, and I don't understand some of it, and I understand the things I need to understand. And that's always the better way to go. What comfort, and I'll come back to that, we get from uh, this doctrine. Therefore, here's my fourth uh, sub-point, providence includes all the good and faithful persons and actions in creation history so that God receives all the glory for all the good. Mordecai is a godly man, isn't he? Esther's a godly woman. Uh, think of them going to prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord. And that's all part of God's story and God's plan. Uh, Mordecai exposes the assassination plot. I think a good Christian has to get involved if something like that happens. If you found out that there was going to be an attempt to assassinate the governor or, or the president, that's your job as a Christian before God to, to inform the, the right authorities and, and do the right thing instead of, well, I don't want to get involved. And Mordecai is a godly man. He has to get involved. Another human being's life's at stake. And so he, re- he reports that. Um, Esther submits to God's purpose for her life by uh, approaching the king unbidden. If he had not held out that golden scepter, she would have been killed, even as queen. Uh, but she knew that God had put her, Mordecai had reminded her, I think God's put you in this position, so you will go do this very thing right now. And believing that, she went and did it. And, and all these efforts uh, to do the right thing, efforts to save God's people after Haman's dead, and that God uses to deliver his people, this is all part of God's grace at work in these people's lives, as we know from the rest of Scripture. God is in charge not only of the evil 
of evil people in charge in the sense that he never loses control and it's all incorporated into his eternal plan and used to bring about good he's in charge we can see this one more clearly of all the good that is ever done that's also part of his plan and then that brings me to my last point here the ultimate revealed purpose of providence is the redemption of god's elect in the lord jesus christ this is the point in the epistle to the romans in chapters 9 through 11 one of the strongest sections on both god's sovereignty and human responsibility chapter 9 you have the strongest statements on god's absolute sovereignty and the salvation and and uh, of, of the elect and the damnation of the lost chapter 10 why are why are so many israelites in trouble today paul says because they won't make the right choice and believe in god's son there's human responsibility there and then chapter 11 kind of pulls it all together and the whole plan centers on christ and him saving his church for eternity think about romans 8 28 in its context a lot of people don't catch this he's not saying that as a christian i can always see how good uh how god's using for good the evil that's happened happening to me right now as i said this morning most of the times in my life i couldn't see it at the moment i had to believe it take it by faith not by sight uh, but he promised that he is going to use it for my good romans 8 28 is in the context of the christian ultimately being in glory of the christian being glorified what he's telling us is when we get to heaven we're going to be able to look back at everything every event every small and big thing in our life and we'll see exactly how god used it for our good as his people it's all going to make sense he's not saying it all makes sense to us right now he's saying that it's all going to make sense as a way of encouraging us to believe right now that no matter how it looks I can trust him that he's using it for my good even though I don't see how. I can trust him that this will somehow turn out for my good. The great enemy of God's people in the book of Esther is attacking God's people. Especially in his evil hatred that centered around this one godly man who represents the living God and God's people. But this man Mordecai is used by God to totally defeat the enemy, Haman, and to save God's people. Even though, as I've said before, he was this close to death that, day, that morning. I mean, if the king had not read the Chronicles, and had not been reminded of who Mordecai was, and had not remembered that Mordecai had saved his life, and had not found out Mordecai had not been rewarded. Up to this point, everything Haman's asked for, he's gotten there's every reason to believe that if those other things had not just happened to happen, Haman would have come in and said, do you mind if I hang this, this rotten guy named Mordecai? And the king said, sure, go ahead. Mordecai was as good as dead, metaphorically. And as I said before, there was a kind of resurrection. Before the story ends, Haman's dead. And Mordecai, who was as good as dead, is now the prime minister of the empire. And with Esther is used to rescue God's people from the death plan for them. What a type of Jesus Christ in his church. What a picture, in a small way, Old Testament picture of the devil in the world attacking Christ by attacking the church 
And the Lord Jesus Christ defeating the enemy by his death and resurrection. Now, how do we apply all of this? I'm going to go through this quickly, and we'll be done by the top of the hour. Uh, One, I can trust the Lord Jesus Christ that he's in ultimate control of all that happens. So that that, um, all things are going according to his eternal plan. And they will glorify God in Jesus Christ. And everything's going to be, in the end, an eternal blessing to those who have come to Christ in faith. Secondly, I can trust the Lord Jesus Christ that he's in ultimate control, not just of all events, but in all that happens to me as an individual who trusts in him. That all of this is really going to be for my good. For my eternal joy and glory by his grace alone. And if I will embrace that by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then during the good times... I can say, isn't the Lord good, and doesn't he, isn't he gracious, and I can praise him. And during the bad times, I can say, I don't know what he's doing, but I know he loves me, and he's good, and he's, he's doing what's for my good, and I can praise him. Whereas there, there, how do you reach that spiritual stability that we see in some of the, you might call the historical giants of the faith in church history? Most of them... We're very strong on this side of God being in control. Martin Luther is an example. Martin Luther wrote his book, uh, The Bondage of the Will. And if um, people complain about Calvin preaching on predestination, they ought to read Luther's book on Bondage of the Will. Uh, it's it's kind of like Calvin times 10 and um, on the subject. And Luther was able to, to do the things he did largely because he believed Jesus Christ really was the Son of God and God is in control. And whatever the Pope or anybody else did, Jesus Christ is the one who is in charge. And the same thing's true of other, of, as I said, of the giants. Uh, there's a stability. You can begin to grow into, it's a lifetime project, you can begin to grow into a kind of stability. You're not always up and down in your faith. If you'll keep your focus on the truth that God is real and that he's in control. And that uh, doesn't mean I don't use the means of grace. Uh, The God who's in control tells me he's going to work in my life normally by means. You know, worship with the church. Read my Bible. Pray. Partake of the Lord's Supper as a member of the church. He uses those things for my advancement in Jesus Christ. But I don't look to the sacraments as an end in themselves or even to reading God's word as an end in itself or even to prayer as an end in itself. That's what the legalist does, right? I have my checklist. I I repeated a prayer today, check. I read daily bread today, check. I even read the scripture that goes with daily bread, check, check. Um, I went to church today, check. That's, That's a... That's looking to the means as the end. No, you do all those things. You do them as a means to getting my focus on the living God in Jesus Christ. And for him to remind me that he is in charge. What comfort in my times of discouragement to know that God's in charge. What, What comfort in my times of trial and difficulty. Or my stumbling spiritually, which we all still do. 
uh, since we're not perfected yet. Uh, what what uh, help it gives us to get up in the morning and to believe that the Lord's in charge. The whole world may be falling apart. Is that Psalm 42 or 46? You know, even when the hills are crumbling and falling into the river, he says, uh, the Lord is my, uh, my refuge. You know, the Lord's in charge. He knows what he's doing. Let's pray.